Every individual case is going to be different and no system out there will ever be able to encompass every single person with every single issue coming in through your door. Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we talk about pain, rehab, performance, and education. If you have questions about the nuance that we dive into, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. Apart from that, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and we hope everyone stays safe and is staying healthy. All right, and welcome back to today's episode. Uh, my name is Dr. Max. I'm here with Dr. Troy Cuck. What's going on, guys? And we are back for another one. We're going to talk a little bit about um, how to essentially be kind of like an intellectual filter and sift through a lot of the BS that's out there as a student, as a young clinician, um, or even as a, an older clinician. You know, there's always con ed courses that you take and there's always um, kind of further education that you're required to do, whether that's uh, as a continuing education units thing that you're trying to get for your license renewal or whether or not you're just doing it to try to stay up to date and be in the loop. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of funny business going on out there uh, in terms of some of the information. I think it can be hard to to filter through some of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and social media is just getting bigger and bigger in the world of physical therapy. And you know, everybody's making a, a professional account and they're throwing out a ton of content. And you know, you're getting stuff all over the spectrum of you know exercises, putting out research, putting out. Um, results on research, um, everything, you know, all the way down to assessments that people are doing, how to interpret those, how to use those, the whole gamut. Yeah. I mean, you and me even both sat in on, so obviously the people listening don't know this necessarily, but, um, I'm at the tail end of my residency at Jefferson and, uh, it's in orthopedics, obviously. And, Troy, you came in on a, a journal club presentation for a recent paper that had just been published on mm-hmm. low back pain, and then you had sent me the Instagram post like two weeks later that someone you was using this paper and had just taken a very small, completely not nuanced you know snippet of the paper and had posted that to basically make a case of like, oh, this paper suggests that deadlifts are as good as this other stuff, and like you just need to deadlift and. And uh, it was an example of a time where even someone who seems like they're using evidence, they're citing a study, they're giving the author in the year, still can can lack some substance to it, lack some nuance. And then I know a lot of students uh, feel like because there's that image, a lot of times it's hard to know when the person is it's almost like you have to already know everything mm-hmm. to be able to understand what is valid and what's not. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of people face. Definitely. And, you know, just like the old saying, you can't believe everything you see on the Internet. Same yeah. thing with social media. Even, you know, if some of these, you know, higher prestigious physical therapists out there are putting out content, you know, don't believe everything at face value. Dive in a little deeper, look into things and and decide for yourself, like you were saying, you know, when we were going through the journal club for that paper specifically, it was pretty poorly done research and there was a lot of conflicting issues with it that 
you couldn't draw any of the conclusions that they were drawing, yet they still did. And then if you just took a little snippet, the half sentence and the conclusion at the very end of the paper, it it completely changes the story of what they were finding and seeing in, in the actual study. So um, I think it's definitely important to, to, you know, question things out there, you know, have a, don't look at everything just open minded, you know, have go in there and look into things, give some sort of, of fill to yourself um, before you believe some of these results out there. Yeah, I mean, it's just like being skeptical, like open minded, but skeptical. So you're open to new ideas, you're open to new information and to changing your mind. But you're skeptical of every idea that's kind of presented mm-hmm. and, you know, not to the extent of just absolutely brushing everything off. Like it, it has to have, you know, 500 RCTs before you mm-hmm. give it any credence. You have to understand the scope and the fact that a lot of what we do is kind of a blend of just, you know, practice and some of the evidence. But uh, but just being skeptical is is obviously one of the most important components of being able to develop a filter and not fall into traps where you're kind of getting roped into a certain system or believing certain people with uh you know quoting studies and results that probably didn't actually weren't actually interpretable that way so to Mm -hmm. speak um yeah and i think that that's obviously when we have students who come in here we try to question what they believe and question their thought process and what evidence or what you know rationale they're using to justify certain things that they're doing. And I think a lot of people will realize that the the reality is there just are no black and white concrete answers. Mm-hmm. And um, it that the that fact makes it ripe for charlatans and and zealots to come in and lay their stake lay their claim that they know the answers and they know how to assess and they know what puts people at risk for injury and then obviously younger clinicians look up to them and think they they must know they've been doing this for so long when in reality you know, i think there's some imposter syndrome going on there where you like you don't feel like you could know better just because you're young so you trust older clinicians when in reality you you may know better mm-hmm I think that's where it's important for us as clinicians too to put out quality stuff. You know, they always say like content, 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 right? Push out like as much as you can. And I think sometimes when you go for that uh, quantity, you lose the quality. And that's when you you maybe post some stuff that maybe isn't the best with um, you know with the evidence or even stuff that you don't do too much in your practice or. You're, you're kind of putting out stuff out there that's just a little bit more controversial because that gets the likes and that get, gets people involved and you lose some of that quality. And, you know, you are educating a lot of people and a lot of people may be looking at your Instagram, looking up to you, and they kind of dive into this thing wholeheartedly and then they start using it in their practice. And then it has this snowball effect where, you know, it's just like one bad idea and then another person grabs that idea and runs with it kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you even look at like, you know, squat university giant Instagram Mm -hmm. page and his, he does such a good job of capturing both kind of clinicians who are younger or, or older and, and are interested in his way of assessing and, 
and all of that. And mm-hmm. then you, he also captures kind of patients and barbell athletes who just want to help rehab their own issues or, or navigate some of the pains that they're experiencing. And obviously he, you know, he specifically comes from a background kind of like the Stu McGill model of, of low back pain where it's all about intra-abdominal pressure and you cannot move under load and you need to be as braced and stabilized as humanly possible and injury is going to come from the pressure on the disc if you flex your spine under load and mm-hmm. um, you know some of that obviously we know is a little bit more nuanced and doesn't always apply to every population uh, not that it doesn't apply in some especially the a lot of the populations that he's gearing things towards maybe more max effort you know lift barbell lifters power lifters and olympic weightlifters but mm-hmm. um you know he's someone who you see a lot of the content is almost less purely informative and more of just these tweets that he screenshots and posts because the tweets get you know a bunch of people who are like you go like you're so right about this and he'll just post something obvious like training getting strong takes time like wow yeah you went to school and you learned that getting strong takes time like that that's obviously and i think he would admit like that's not Maybe people need to be reminded of that, but that's obviously something that anyone who's ever gotten strong could tell you. Yeah, um, but everybody agrees with it. Everybody, hops everyone on board agrees with it. It's... Everyone shares it. You know, like yeah, he's so right, and mm-hmm. and it's more of that message that people relate to, and that gets a ton of likes, a ton of shares, and I'm sure when he posts, and and credit to him, like he'll post a a full five or ten minute like quick evaluation of someone with low back pain, just so you can get some insight on what he looks at, mm-hmm. which I think is brave and i think that a lot of people don't do that and would be exposed if they did mm-hmm. so you can always pick apart his his process but you know he's one of the only guys sharing that level of of insight into what he does yeah which is awesome but i'm sure that if you look at his analytics that gets way fewer hits than the more like obvious tweet that is posted out there that's just a resonating message but it does make it hard when you want to grow social media or participate but you want to do it in a way that you're just putting out quality content the reality is it has to it has to be somewhat sexy like what you're putting out there yeah and that's going back to like the controversial so that's just like the concrete stuff that everybody can get on board with that gets a lot of a lot of uh interest and people um participating with it another thing is the controversy you know, just putting out these like black or white, just like far one way statements. And then it just ruffles up some feathers, gets the crowd going. And that's another way to get a lot of to get a lot of, of cloud on social medias. But just like you said, so much of what we do is there's this whole spectrum and this whole gray area. And, you know, if if you're looking up to these people that are putting out a lot of these like far one way um, statements or beliefs or whatever, then you can kind of adopt those in yourself and lose sight of the fact that like, maybe this doesn't apply for everybody. And you know, when should this apply? When would I use this stuff instead of making these blanket um, blanket statements towards the whole population or the whole profession? Yeah, and like the pendulum swings so hard with that stuff mm-hmm. where well, obviously things several years ago or more the Stu McGill kind of very biomechanical 
thought processes and narratives behind how to lift weights and prevent injury and now things shifted to the biopsychosocial model and people are all on the the psychosocial factors and Mm -hmm. you know then you get extremists on that side who are like your mri is meaningless it's like no calm down mri is not meaningless like the person's foot drops it's probably relevant that they have a disc herniation you know or the person has a fully numb hand and can't grip anything for the last six weeks after an acute trauma to their neck like their mri means something there's something structural yeah they're like we we need to consider this finding here but it, it's really hard when it's not clear cut what to do in those situations and people love to come along and and give a very clear answer on like your MRI is meaningless mm-hmm. or you know disc herniations cause low back pain. So we know both of those are untrue. But where should you sit in the middle on every individual case is impossible to post about on Instagram, obviously. Right. That's why you go to extensive years of formal education and residencies and continuing education. And and then you still kind of don't know. You just have a better, better like compass to navigate the open ocean, basically. So I would challenge you if you do see something that you find interesting, whether it's an assessment tool, evaluation tool, an, an intervention, whatever challenge yourself and try and find somebody that you would use it for try and find somebody that you wouldn't use it for and that will help you navigate and be like "Hmm, maybe i actually can see myself using this a lot or it's like when would i ever use this maybe i wouldn't ever use this and then that'll also help you to decide like you know how you're going to use this in your practice and when you're going to pull out these tools um, for somebody else and you know, if you do see something on the social media that you're you think may be useful, you know, try it on yourself, try it on a friend, or or sprinkle it into your practice. You know, don't completely, you know, revamp your practice based on social media. But maybe you'll do your your normal evaluation or whatever, and then you'll just throw in this test to to see what you you find with it, or this intervention to see how somebody responds to it, and that can also help you kind of like you said navigate through all these all the different things that you find on the social media. Yeah. And I mean, this is like one of the areas that I think people, at least students who come in typically have a harder time understanding a lot of what you see out there, especially the stuff that works, works in spite of the reason that it's proposed to work. So oftentimes you're not even really arguing about whether or not something works. You're just kind of arguing about why it worked. And at the end of the day, the patient probably doesn't care whether or not this kind of like hip lift that they did or the RDLs or whatever exercise that they did was improving self-efficacy, addressing their fear of movement, improving activity tolerance and loading a body region, or that it was uh, realigning a posteriorly rotated sacrum innominant that is counter-nutated and needs to be, you know, repositioned. The patient probably doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 potential harm is if you give them a narrative, and then the intervention doesn't work for whatever reason, and that narrative has like nocebo'd them and and added to some of the psychosocial complications that we know exist. 
But if you're able to incorporate certain treatment techniques or evaluation things that you might see online that you may or may not know if there's a ton of evidence for, you can obviously do that deep dive yourself and see what is out there to support this intervention or this um, assessment technique. A lot of times if you're seeing it on social media, there probably isn't anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But then like you said, even if there's nothing and you have some rationale that's evidence-based as to why this could possibly work and you're not going to cause any risk of harm to the patient because the intervention is dangerous or because you are um, providing them with potentially harmful narratives, then yeah, try it. Mm -hmm. Why not? There's just tons of exercises that I see some of the systems do. You know, like we were talking about me spending time more with some of the McKenzie-based therapists Mm -hmm. and through residency kind of being exposed to that a little bit more. And obviously there's a ton of harmful narratives that's that goes with their bias. But, you know, exploring directional preference and the potential impact of some of those positions or exercises is probably worthwhile. You know, and you can use those things without having to combine them with crazy mechanistic explanations as to why they work. Yeah. And um, and going off of that, you know, it, it's kind of this idea that not one system, not one exercise, not one evaluation tool is going to be the one, right? So same thing, like when you're using social media to, to educate yourself, don't just stick with a few things and, and go for like those one and, and just dive down that rabbit hole and run with it. You know, follow a lot of different people, get exposed to a lot of different ideas, a lot of different uh, people out there, a lot of different settings, a lot of different biases. And that way you'll, you can get little pieces from everything and blend yourself towards, you know, maybe what you believe in, what you follow, and you'll just be a better well-rounded clinician than to, you know, be all in on one of these systems. Yeah, like I never want someone to be able to say a couple words that describe the way that I evaluate and treat patients. I never want someone to be able to say like, oh, Max, yeah, he's he's like a McKenzie guy. And mm-hmm. then the person's like, oh, okay. I kind of already know how he he thinks and what he believes. Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, Max, yeah, that's the, uh, he's, big, he's a big SFMA guy or he's a big PRI guy. Like all of those associations, if you make yourself too strongly associated with that, you're almost like choosing a political party. Mm-hmm. And all of these beliefs that you have, you're kind of like buying into the all of them, you know, and, and you don't have to do that. But if you go down the rabbit hole so hard on a lot of that stuff, you end up almost like boxing yourself in and you can almost like, uh, what's the what's the expression, miss the forest for the trees or something like that? I'm not familiar uh, with that one. Yeah, you're basically so deep in it mm-hmm. that you can't see the forest. You're only seeing the trees now, mm-hmm. and you don't realize you're in a forest. And I think that that's how you can you can kind of set yourself up with some of the um, some of those systems to you know be so boxed into evaluating people through the SFMA that you can't conceptually step outside of that and then see the bigger picture and see what's going on. And when I think about the people that I that I personally look up to in the profession like, you know, obviously 
Chris, my residency director, and some of the other faculty at different universities that I've worked with, or like the barbell medicine guys, and some of those uh, clinicians, Quinn Hennock, and, and all those people, when you look at them as clinicians, it's hard for you to say, and you really can't say like, they're big into this, or big into that. They're generally just not associated with names and taglines and systems. You'd really just say, yeah, they're big into science, mm-hmm. or they're big into evidence, or, or whatever. And that, that I feel like is the Goldilocks zone. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that I know a lot of those guys have still taken PRI courses and taken McKenzie courses and use those treatment, you know, approaches in their sessions, but they're not the system. Right. The system doesn't dictate what they do. But you get those people who are like the guy. Yeah. And just like, you know, even from a patient care standpoint, all the time, you know, one intervention isn't going to work for every single person. One system isn't going to work for every single person. So when you do dive down these these rabbit holes, that's not going to work for everybody. So you need to be versatile. You need to be able to pull information from a lot of different resources to, to make it work for each individual, right? Every individual case is going to be different and no system out there will ever be able to encompass every single person with every single issue coming in through your door yeah and and i feel like it's almost a it's almost like a fool's errand to try to create a system like that um why does everybody i just think because of the amount of uncertainty that there is it just it's so sellable yeah for young clinicians and for students who are just like looking for more confidence and they want to know what to do and how to give good patient care and really help people and then a system comes along and they feel like someone's really giving them clear direction now and clear answers and school wasn't doing that Mm -hmm. because school is obviously going to at least in most instances try to be moderate and evidence-based to some degree Mm -hmm. and uh, so i feel like the profession is just ripe for that and it's a really good way to make money if you offer a system yeah and offer some clear-cut answers and i think that there are there are probably i th- i mean i do think that there are people who also believe that they have the system like gray cook i think probably did believe that the fms the sfma were the way mm-hmm. and so that's not like i think that they're lying per se no they're just mistaken uh, and they're using a lot of their experience to create a system, but they're not worried about necessarily validating it through evidence. But then when it catches enough steam, people start studying it. Then you realize 10 years down the line, like, oh, it's not actually valid or reliable. doesn't predict anything. And it's overall pretty useless. <laughs> but they made 10 years of, of profit off of it before that happens. Um, right. You, you mentioned earlier just like sifting through when you're, you know, uh, a student or a clinician looking at continuing ed too and, and diving into, you know, some of the research that they've had to back it up, especially with these bigger systems. Most of them have a pool of research to, to help support it. And, you know, I challenge you once again to dive into that research yourself and kind of take a look at the studies they've been doing, how they went about these studies and looking at the, the quality of the research and, and does it support it? What is it, what is it showing? Yeah, I mean, you can find a reference that seems to support anything. Sure. 
right? And most people don't have the the degree of confidence or of autonomy to go out, find that paper, even find the PDF of it, and then to then take the next step to read it, sift through it, mm-hmm. understand its limitations, and then make a decision as to whether that paper adequately does support the claims of this company or system. I think that's a a difficult, it is a very difficult thing to do. But the reality is I just don't think unless you're, you're, you develop the skills to do that, you're kind of going to be spending the rest of your career hoping that someone tells you the right answers. And that's just, that's no fun to me at least. It's inefficient too. Yeah, it's inefficient you're you are at risk or vulnerable for deceit and it just feels like a better option to roll the dice on your own understanding your own you know intellectual development and that's where you know i think like residency processes do a good job at least some of them some of them suck some of them are good but uh they can do a good job of heightening that level of understanding for some of that stuff Mm -hmm. um but yeah it is it is a a challenge but i've gone through some of the reference lists for a lot of the popular courses out there and when you just look at some of the research that they cite it's like this is a this is a big stretch you know like you're taking a study that's almost wildly unrelated and then using it to justify your beliefs just like that guy who posted the study we talked about in journal club mm-hmm. like it was so nuanced but he could probably use that to sell a course and justify teaching all your low back pain patients how to deadlift and he just needs that study and a few others and he can create a put together a reference list mm-hmm. and uh you know maybe he's right but there's at least enough there to to question whether or not it's an accurate extrapolation of the data into what they're suggesting and the more black and white things get probably the more wrong they are definitely just in general um has there been anything that you feel like you mistakes you made as a student or young clinician in not being able to filter that stuff out like did you ever go down any rabbit holes um, I'd say I definitely went down some rabbit holes. I think for me, especially like when we're talking about social media, you know, when you're a student, you follow these group of people and it's kind of just, I'd say like lower level intuitive stuff, right? Yeah. And and then as your knowledge base grows, as your kind of practice grows, you're like, you know, this isn't that good of stuff. And then you, you kind of shape your social media around, you know, how you've been growing. And it's like, oh, like I thought these were awesome ideas as, as a student. Now that I know more, like, this is kind of garbage, right? Yes. <laughs> and you get rid of those and then you kind of keep growing and growing. Um, I'd say as a student, you're, I feel like you're super biased towards your, uh, your clinicals and your CIs, right? I remember my first clinical was uh, with Maitland and it was very Maitland focused. One of my CIs was a, a Maitland instructor. Um, so, you know, I had all, all the materials there and went through all the Maitland stuff and kind of got it like forced upon me to, to practice that way to practice like the the clinic and the clinicians were practicing there and so I I was kind of like forced into this and 
you know, as I'm reading through it, I had a tough time getting on board with like the conceptual ideas around some of the stuff. But then when you were, you started using it in the clinic, like people were obviously getting better. Um, for me, it just didn't really jive with my thought processes and my rationales for a lot of things. So that one, it, it didn't really uh, suck me down the rabbit hole, um, which is, you know, maybe a good thing. Cause once again, it's a system and I, I didn't just fall into that system. Um, and then, uh, in my other clinical, I was exposed a lot to like the, the PRI and the Bill Hartman stuff. And once again, I would say I was pulled a little bit more heavily towards, uh, towards these concepts. And, um, once again, you know, used it in my practice. It was, it was definitely beneficial. A lot of people were getting better using these things. And then once again, these things weren't working for everybody and I wasn't getting sucked down that rabbit hole, wasn't just going all in on this stuff. And, you know, now I use, sometimes I use some of the Maitland stuff, sometimes I use some of the PRI stuff, and a lot of times I don't use either of those and I just treat whoever is in front of me and I use the best tools for them. So I, I was definitely given some biases going through my uh, student career, but um, I, I definitely didn't just dive down and go wholeheartedly into any of those, I would say. How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, everyone obviously has their, their biases when they're going through school. I think my earliest one was probably kind of the Kelly Sturette stuff early on, like an undergrad, um, where it was just all about like banded distractions and mashing things with lacrosse balls and and <laughs> wrapping things around your joints breaking and, up that scar tissue yeah breaking up the scar tissue which which kelly's model has changed too like he's kind of evolved with the times as well um but at the time you know i was very convinced of, of all that stuff and uh, i never put that much thought into the mechanisms of like what's this lacrosse ball actually doing for me it was more of just like oh kelly said if you're having knee pain on the on the lateral border or the just the side of my knee that i could mash this into my it band or my quad and uh, i would do it do some kind of mobilization with movement and and i would feel better and i wasn't really thinking like oh this is 100 percent doing this i was just like i don't care all that much but i definitely went down that rabbit hole um and then i guess i was kind of lucky i was exposed to like quinn hennock and clinical athlete early on and they were very skeptical and they would question kind of some of these more popular systems like you know movement screens or or even kelly Sturette's kind of soft tissue based stuff and um seeing their thought process was helpful for me because then i went into pt school and i was already like primed to be skeptical about things mm -hmm. um but i'd say kelly Sturette was was one of the biggest influences and i i appreciate that he was too because i think that he's awesome and what he's built is is unlike what any other pt has built and so even from an impact on the profession like it's unarguably larger than most evidence-based you know researchers at a random institution like he's made a bigger advocacy for our profession has probably positively impacted it just as much if not more than any phd in a lab mm -hmm. um so kudos to him for that but it was obviously still needed to evolve over time and then I discovered that, thankfully, uh, as I kept kind of looking in. But like you were saying with the the social media stuff, you get exposed to some people, you probably idealize them a lot. 
and feel like their word is not gospel, but you you really, really trust that what they say is accurate. And I think as you progress on, you should have that evolution where you start to see the information that they're presenting and start to be like, ah, I don't know if I totally agree with the majority of this person's views anymore, or at least I don't agree with this component of their thought process. And uh, I think it's important not to put too many people on a, such a high pedestal that you feel like you have to look up to them for the answers. I think you should really see yourself, especially once you graduate, you're a colleague of every other person in this profession. And your opinion may not be as well informed and you should probably recognize that oftentimes, but those individuals aren't above being questioned and above being skeptical of and uh, remaining humble in your skepticism and not idolizing people too much, I think is, is a useful tool to kind of be in a, a nice kind of learning zone where you, you can benefit from everyone uh, in terms of what they have to offer you from a knowledge standpoint even those who don't necessarily practice in the most evidence-based way still might know things about running a clinic or owning a business or uh, making you know meaningful connections with patients things that you don't know um, and so there's always kind of something to learn but there's a lot that you have to unlearn if you go too down too far down one one path but um, cool. So hopefully that gave you guys some insight into how we think about the the BS that's in, in our profession, the information that you have to kind of sift through and filter, uh, and some of the resources and the challenge of mod uh, like picking which ones to uh, listen to and expose yourself to in terms of continuing your education or uh, improving or enhancing the current education that you're going through if you're currently a student or in school. Uh, we have a May 18th RISE cohort starting and an August 5th, I believe, RISE cohort. You guys can go to sportsrehabeducation.com for more information on those if you're interested in learning directly from us. Uh, otherwise, we appreciate you guys listening and we'll catch you in the next one. Later, guys. Thank you for listening to the Training Room Talk podcast. We hope today's discussion was helpful in illuminating some of the complexities behind pain and rehab. If you don't know where to go from here, please reach out to us with questions. We have mentorship options for clinicians and students and programming options for you to elevate your own fitness. We look forward to speaking with you and again, hope you enjoyed today's discussion.